Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Kretzer. And I am Mike Taylor. Welcome to our special Gone Till November month. The four episodes we're doing this month are a little bit of a change from our normal approach of taking an article or a book or an activist letter and then talking about the analysis contained therein. Instead, we're looking at our own ideas, see what could go wrong and what could go right. And actually, in this episode, we're looking at ideas that we've had in the past. Mike and I have already pitched long ideas on the last two episodes. And in our next episode, we're going to review all the lessons we've learned from our investing and from the first 99 episodes of Behind the Idea, because it's our 100th episode next week. But on this episode, we're doing a full version of our beloved spinoff theme, Why I'm a Bad Investor. Mike and I are each going to break down one idea we've invested in that didn't work and try to dissect whether it was bad luck, whether our process wasn't good, what we got wrong one way or the other. If we have time, maybe we'll also look at an idea that we broke down on behind the idea to see where our analysis went astray there. But mostly we want to understand why the two of us are bad investors. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work. Sometimes to do that, you have to look at bad investment analysis. We take articles from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem, as well as Joel Greenblatt books, activist letters, and ideas from our own portfolios, and try to break them down to understand the approach and how this can apply to our, and maybe even your investing. That said, nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort, and I don't think we have inve- any positions in any stocks we plan to name. Nope. But what do we have? We do have a position. We have a position in Seeking Alpha. It's true. We're, <laughs> we're both long Seeking Alpha. It's true. And that's an important disclosure because in a way, so are you, the listener, in as much as Behind the Idea is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Pro Plus gives you exclusive access to top ideas which are ideas by good investors, unlike us, bad investors, who are sharing bad ideas. So when you want ideas that are the opposite of the ideas we're going to share today, to wit, good ideas, uh, Seeking Alpha Pro Plus is the way to go. The reason for that is because it helps you find the best of Seeking Alpha quickly and easily, so you can spend more time breaking down the analysis behind it. Uh, and avoiding bad ideas. To try Pro Plus, go to SeekingAlpha.com slash Pro Plus, where you can sign up. You can sign up for a monthly subscription or even try an annual subscription with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So check it out at SeekingAlpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. Pro Plus, we sponsor Behind the Idea. So, Pro Plus is about good ideas. This episode is about bad ideas. Ideas, at least in the very least, that didn't work. Mike, would you like to lead or would you like me to lead as far as bad ideas? You have the coin flip here. I'll go first. I'll, go, I'll share my bad idea first. Okay. Daniel. What? Mike Taylor, was your bad idea? I bought Gilead Sciences, ticker symbol G-I-L-D, in June 2018. Okay. This was in the wake of some sort of, I would say, historic drug approval events. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar, Gilead Sciences is a biopharmaceutical company that specializes in antiviral drugs. Uh, They make some of the leading anti-HIV medications. They make Tamiflu, which attacks the flu, believe it or not. And they, uh, in in this time, a couple of few years ago, they were getting a lot of press and attention because the FDA had approved their hepatitis C treatment, which was 
a landmark scientific achievement in that it cures the disease and kills the virus. Before that, uh, treatment for hepatitis C was riddled with a lot of unpleasant side effects, and uh, the disease was still quite damaging even with treatment. Uh, so when Gilead came out with a cure for hepatitis C, it was a really uh, major medical and public health event globally, I would say. And so that's kind of, I became interested in Gilead during that time. And uh, after reading about it, studying the financials some, although less than I would have done if I were taking a look today, I bought the stock. Okay, so that's a good background on Gilead. What what was your thesis? What was your sort of, you don't have to say edge, but just what, why did you, what, what <laughs> compelled you about this position? There are a couple elements. So I think my thesis was this, this drug, Savaldi and Harvoni, the, the sort of Savaldi, the first iteration of this hepatitis C cure, Harvoni, the refined version that was approved a little bit afterwards. My thesis was basically that this drug could probably single-handedly generate Gilead's then current market cap in around 10 years just on cash flow with only like a little bit of growth. And the reason for that seemed to be that the market was pricing up in basically no or even slightly negative sales growth for these two drugs. And so Gilead was trading at a PE of around nine, nine to 10 towards the 10 end of that range. And as everyone knows, in 2016, well, I guess we had the shale bust and a modest market correction, but everyone's worried about expensive stock valuations at that time. And I went, okay, here's a stock with a 10 PE. That sounds cheap to me. I have this belief in the drug and its ability to generate cash flows. I think the market's too pessimistic about what's going to happen. And so I'm going to buy. And then I bought. And that was it. So two legs to the thesis. One, this drug is really amazing. This company is amazing that can create this kind of drug. Two, the stock is cheap and the market's too pessimistic about the drug's value. You know something? Listeners are likely to be aware of something that Gilead has and had. That would have attracted Mike's attention as well. You know what Gilead had, Mike? What did Gilead have? Really good gross margins. It had great gross margins. <laughs> great. I don't know if I even looked at the gross <laughs> margins at the time. I think I was very qualitative gut feel on this one. Well, I think it's it's also, I mean, the whole model necessitates high gross margins. I mean, the point is that you... Your spending is on R&D or on acquisitions or whatever else or sales if you just need to sell the drug. Have to support. Yeah. Making the drug. I mean, just by definition, I it's just something that I thought of as we were. That's, the, you know, the pharmaceutical lobby, uh, which is right here in my town of D.C., is putting on ads on Twitter, on television that effectively are they're sort of gearing up for the election season i think and sort of warning people about what's going to happen that are like look we need to control drug pricing but let's not forget about innovation and they're sort of warning the pop general population that if if there's some greater attention to the amount that is paid for drugs there will be an attendant reduction in medical research which is to your point, they're basically like, guys, we need our gross margins. We need them. And they have Twitter ads that are like, protect pharmaceutical companies' gross <laughs> margins. It's what's best for everyone. <laughs> well, it's that's not the exact words, but that's what the message is. So, yeah, you're right. This is a critical, but that's an important thing. Go ahead. You have a point. So go well, it just says with the capitalist hat on, the you could argue that gap accounting is not really adequate for capturing the long years of investment front-ended that that or maybe gap accounting captures this but then what is perceived by the broader public is that you only see the boom 
without ignoring the years of money that were poured into it. So just that's the argument people make. Yeah, that's the argument. So <laughs> let's let's avoid the the political context unless it's real because the political context for the I as you sort of said what happened in 2016 I was also thinking of and I don't know if Gilead was in the news yet I know either Savaldi or Harvoni's price has come I feel like it's something that Bernie Sanders has pointed out or others but I don't know if they were in the news yet but 2015-16 is also when Valiant is in the news when drug prices are really smarted. Shkreli is in the news, etc. But oh, one Hillary Clinton is in the news, right. specifically calling out. I don't know if you wanted to go there, but I think our listeners will probably right. She had the famous. Them. She had the famous tweet. No, I wasn't trying to. I was just trying to. I she wasn't the only one, but yeah, she had the famous tweet about drug prices. I just can't remember where Gilead the tweet heard around the IBB index <laughs> fund. <laughs> kaboom <laughs> so what it's were kind you... of funny that that scared investors well i guess I... it's just hindsight's 2020 right it does it seems thanks so to that... my new drug <laughs> it seems so naive now with everything that all the tweeting <laughs> driven action in our modern day that that in 2015 was a huge deal was it one of the great tweets political tweets <laughs> of all time on the mount rushmore yeah. of political treat tweets in market effect <laughs> three of the other ones are <laughs> just by donald trump just because of his sheer shots on goal <laughs> he's he, yeah um <laughs> what were you worried about when you invest in gilead like what did you at the time where did you did you think it could go wrong or did you just sort of say 10 uh, you're yeah. compensated I think, you know, listeners of this podcast would not consider me to be an overly self-assured investor, you know, and I don't think that that's necessarily one of my weaknesses today. But it was at this time, I would say that it was pretty self-assured that like, this drug is great, they're going to be able to price it and manage the rollout so that they'll, they'll do a good job of maximizing the cash flows from the drug. The market doesn't agree about that because the market's too scared about emerging competition and pricing pressure. And I also thought the market was probably too pessimistic about the pricing that Gilead would be able to negotiate with other countries. I was like, look, they just, if you basically, the idea was like, this company cured a disease that no one thought could be cured. They'll be fine. So I wasn't all that. Worried, I guess the one thing that I did maybe find compelling was an argument that, you know, a lot of drug companies, the sort of conspiracy tinfoil hat idea from the consumer's perspective is basically that companies are capable of curing diseases, but because it's more profitable to create long-term treatment regimes, uh, they do that instead. And Gilead's not doing that with this drug. They're creating a cure, therefore they're missing out on the opportunity to sort of maximize the value of this uh, innovation that they've created. And I thought that was compelling, but I sort of didn't believe that it was possible that that would be true. It doesn't seem on the surface. You think, well, look, then the cure, just efficient market pricing, the cure is just going to be worth the sum of the present value of the cash flows that the patient's going to pay out. I think I was naive about how the healthcare system works at that time. And I just thought that investors in a company that would cure a disease and have such an innovative treatment strategy uh, would be rewarded for that. And that's not how, how it works. I don't think. Yeah. There's again, I will just point to it before returning to the topic is that it asks questions about what is the incentive structure in the economy and whether it is always aligned with something like a good, a great success, like developing a cure for a disease. But my question for you then is what happened? What happened next? Like, do you take the position? What's your over the months? For years that followed, what what was sort of the how, how did it play out? 
<laughs> um, basically, the market proved to be have an accurate view of the stock's value. The ice cube melted very slowly. You know, revenue growth was at around zero or slightly negative. Certainly nothing that would have exceeded anyone's expectations took place when subsequent earnings came out. The ice cube was definitely not growing. So I was correct in my analysis that I was getting Gilead for a pretty good multiple of 9 or 10. The multiple did not compress, so I was correct about the market's sentiment towards the stock. My The problem came in with the, uh, the earnings themselves, which shrunk and therefore the share price compressed. Gilead kind of bounced around between my cost basis, hung around a lot at a 10% or 15% unrealized loss. Occasionally dip further down, which would make me sort of kick myself, climb further up towards the baseline, never really doing any better than that. And in a way, I think this was worse than maybe if it had a sharper decline in the share price. It would have made me more willing to reevaluate my thinking. But the fact that it was like kind of in this perennial dip. I think prolonged my uh, agony, my 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 will. Yeah, prolonged my <laughs> agony and prolonged my willingness to sort of reevaluate what was going on. So because it was sort of stringing you along because it wasn't. Yeah, there was nothing like they were selling the drug and it was going out and it was creating value in the world and they were earning profits off of it, but they weren't doing anything impressive and so when that happens you're like well maybe they'll just they haven't figured it out they'll figure it out next quarter and do you mind sharing what your cost basis was roughly i think it was in the low 80s 82 or 83 and uh, gilead spent a lot of time in the 70s and occasionally would dip into the high or mid 60s and climb back up it went green for one day, I think, and I tweeted that out that my, my Gilead position is green today, and then it got slammed back down. No one liked the stock. Or I think it was very popular on Seeking Alpha, but I didn't read any of the analysis because I thought that's just an echo chamber, and if you're long stock, you need to think for yourself. But I saw all these long ideas come across the transom as an editor. Um, and so there were a lot of people along with me, I think, who had similar thinking. And I think that the the trend of the past five, five years or a lot of this cycle has been cheap stocks not working out. So I don't feel terrible about that. I think that what was bad is that I let myself get strung along and didn't cut my losses or didn't free up the capital earlier. Time is your enemy as an investor with an idea that's not working out. And I let let it go too long so when did you realize when did you realize that this was not working like was it just a matter of you you said that it was stringing you along you kind of weren't quite convicted but you're mostly you're talking about i guess earnings declining which i think was because revenue was declining but also the price you're talking about is kind of not drastically lower but it's sort of grinding lower when did you sort of realize this is not like it's not just haha. Uh, oh, this will turn around. It's okay. This isn't. This is not a winning investment. The answer to that is when they bought Kite Biopharma, uh, which happened in August 2017. Okay, I that was a moment where I was like, okay, why Kite Biopharma is a cancer immunotherapy company, cancer technology company of some kind. Gilead's advantages are in virology. Cancer and viruses are occasionally connected, but mostly are separate um, types of diseases. So uh, when that news came across the transom, first of all, I was completely surprised by it, which is probably not a good sign if you're an investor to not see something like this coming, which goes to me not following the story very carefully. And then the second was, I have no idea what they plan to do with this. 
company, this acquisition. It's a giant acquisition, $11 billion, and Gilead had a market cap of somewhere in the 70, 80, 100 billion dollars. So like a meaningful deal that I had no idea where they were going to go with it. And so I said, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing. I didn't before, and now I really don't because management is embarking on a strategy that I don't understand. I should sell. I then emailed a friend who works in biotech and for biotech companies, and he said the same thing. He said, I like what Gilead has done, but I don't know what this management team is up to. And I need more confidence in management if I'm going to invest in pharmaceutical companies. So so that was my moment of realization. So the market disagreed with you, right? The mar- It looks like if you go back to the stock charts in August 2017, the this, this stock actually got back up to around your cost basis, mid-80s. So what did you do... And, you know, I think that's a good theme. The idea of the thesis has changed. And on the one hand, you could, that's a good reevaluation point, right? Either you're, you, you, maybe you redevelop a new thesis, but thesis drift is something where you're kind of finding excuses to stay in a position that may not be working. So that's, I think, a common thing. But what did you do once you identified? that potential change in thesis? Well, Daniel, I had this this news cross the wire. I think that's when I had my green green day for my Gilead position, somewhere around that time. I got made whole, and I thought, aha, yes. I got made whole. I do not understand what management's doing. I have no business owning this stock. And so I did what I think a lot of investors do in that situation. And I continued to hold the stock for another 11 months. <laughs> I didn't sell till November 2018. You love to see it. You love to see it. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I can't believe it. it's actually, uh, there was a quote floating around, you know, we're fans of Danny Kahneman and these prospect theory oh. behavioral economics people on behind the idea. And he has, uh, um, he said, Someone asked him, well, what can you do knowing that your human decision process is so flawed? And he said, well, you can write down the decisions that as you make them and then wait a little while, come back and then evaluate the results of the decision and try to figure out what went wrong. And I think one of the things I'm noticing as I went through this process is I had no idea how poorly I did this. I thought I was in and out of this thing within a year. And I held this position for a super duper long time, held it for like three years, something like that, four years, this money loser, go nowhere, dead money stock. And I knew it was dead money and then continued to hold it for another year after that. I'm like blown away by, we were talking before the podcast or we were talking sort of as we were planning this, like how, how long it took. I had forgotten how how long I had been let myself get strung along, and I think that's interesting that my ego or what just forgetfulness made me think of myself as better at this than I am by the evidence. I really just objectively underestimated the time it took me to fix this, which I think is not abnormal, but certainly a little bit humbling. Mm-hmm. So wait, what? And so the date again, when you finally made your exit, you said was September 2018 or November, November wow. 2018. Okay. Interesting. Not even September, two extra months. Wow. And if you look at the chart, it didn't get. <laughs> well, right. It, it got hurt. wasn't great. It got hurt in Q4 last year. Yeah. Uh, well, it's much, it's more or less the same as where it wasn't. I, I got mean, out. Okay. I got out in the seventies. So I wasn't destroyed you know but i did have my money in there the whole time while the market was going pretty much unrepentantly higher and uh, i did realize the loss wasn't good and i think the length of time that i was in it was a real mistake right i think i would go quicker next time that's my new goal more trading 
because everyone knows that that's the path to investment success. No, but it's, I think it's, yeah. So what, what other lessons? I think there's something to that about we sometimes, there's a difference between making deliberate decisions, which I think is good, and delaying decisions because of you don't want to admit a mistake or you you don't bother to do finish doing the work or whatever, like not trusting your gut and not, I'm not saying trust your gut, but I guess like there is, there's, I think there is something to that idea of, oh, well, you really should have, you, you knew better earlier. And that as will become clear when I do mine, like that's often the case. But what, what other lessons? Uh, low multiple doesn't mean anything by itself. I think that's something that a lot of people know, but they probably need to learn the hard way. A low multiple and a good story is not enough. That's not an edge, I think. You need to do a lot more work on a stock to um, have it work out in your favor, if that's even possible. I don't have informational advantages on specialized technology like antiviral drugs. So listeners to my very end long pitch, keep that in mind. <laughs> Watch out for mission creep. Sell sooner when you're not sure what you're doing anymore. I ask myself honestly more often, do I really know what I'm doing and what don't I know? And I'm okay with uh, I don't know very much being the answer as long as that answer doesn't sort of give me an additional twinge of like I'm really out over my skis. So there's a difference between uncertainty and so like poker is a game of uncertainty and risk and chance, but you can sit down on a poker table and not know how the game is played and you'll lose money a lot faster that way than if you at least understand the basic strategy. And so I'm okay with uncertainty. I'm not okay with not knowing the sort of parameters within which I'm trying to win the game. And uh, finally, I think writing is just really important. I didn't really write out a fully fleshed out idea here. And I think if I had had a piece of writing to go back to, I would have had a more objective way of evaluating where I was at that time versus, versus where I started. And, uh, Finally, it's better to sell uh, late than even later. Looks like my decision to sell was not a bad one. Uh, the, the ensuing year w did not produce any kind of rebound for Gilead. They're still sort of seemingly in the same spot. So there you go. Okay. Okay. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> we're back. So, Mike, you've gone over your thesis in Gilead and how it went wrong. So I yes. guess it's my turn. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> so, so Daniel, so Daniel, that's what, me. uh, what, what is the stock? What is the stock that made you a bad investor? Oh, what is the stock that didn't make me a bad investor, Mike? Disney. <laughs> Disney's fine. I'm long Disney. <laughs> Disclosure. Disney's oh, shoot. We did. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry <laughs> that's okay it's i disclose it what's irritating about investing in large caps is you have to disclose them because you always talk about them the right. number of times i've had to disclose talking about warren buffett's company or even the largest search company in the world it's irritating but the buffett partnership <laughs> i got in before my birth it was really pretty timing <laughs> that's amazing Okay. So, so what's this company we're going to talk about now? I think the company we should talk about is one that I have sold. I sold the position finally. Oh, I'll tell when. It's Unity Group. Unity Group, Inc. That's U-N-I-T-I Group, Inc. It's a REIT. And it is got an interesting story to it. It's idiosyncratic in its bad investing approach. But I think there's some similarities with what what happened with your Gilead thesis. Oh. So so wait, so okay, so Unity, a read. Yeah, so let's go what was your thesis with Unity, this read? So it's ticker symbol unit, UNIT. It was a spin-off. As listeners know, we're both interested. I'm listening. I'm intrigued. 
So it was a spinoff in, I think, 2015 or 2016. Um, spun off from Windstream. I think it was 2015. Windstream is a regional telecommunications provider. It's one of those companies that is not in a growth industry. You know, traditionally voice communications, landlines, and that sort of thing. Also data, also, you know, um, internet provider, but it, the way that's going with Charter, with Comcast, it, that's a tough industry. Windstream was a retail investing favorite at the time. It spun out Communications Sales and Leasing, CSAL, which was what then became Unity. They rebranded in 2016 or 17. But they spun it out. The idea was they spun out the real estate that Windstream owned, i.e. the fiber assets and the lines itself. And they turned that into a REIT. And then they signed a lease. They leased it back to Windstream. And so the whole model was that Windstream would pay communication sales and leasing and then Unity, I'll just call it Unity the rest of the time, a, a annual lease. And in the meantime, Unity would try to continue to accumulate these sorts of telecommunications assets that it could then lease to operators. Uh, they got into cell phone towers. They bought, they've been buying cable assets. I have not followed the story as closely since I sold, but that's, that's essentially the proposition. They received this high level, uh, a lot of money from Windstream. I think it was something like $675 million a year as a starting point for the lease. And that was the bulk of their business. And then they pay out a lot, they would pay out a large dividend to their investors. $2.4 a share. The spin happened somewhere in the 20s, I think. So, hmm. 10% yield, more or less. Yeah, 9 or 10. 9 or 10. Yeah, I... Multiple. I Same, uh, similar thing there. Wait, so just real quick. They're a REIT and they own phone lines and stuff. Essentially. Dark Do they own the land? That's a good question. I don't. I, the land that the fiber's in there. I'm just I, trying to. Be I think so. Really I long think long tracks of land. They. I mean. I, I don't remember if they own the land or if they own la- usage rights of the land, which, uh-huh. for all intents and purposes, I think is similar. And I stayed away. So it spun in 2015. I didn't open a position until 2017. I had it on my radar because. You know, when we sit in Seeking Alpha, we're exposed to a lot of investors' thoughts. And there was a lot of frustration over that situation from investors because I don't have the numbers in front of me to explain in full, but it essentially worked out to be a dividend cut in all of this. Windstream paid a big dividend. Their dividend was going to be smaller. And even though they were spinning out CSAL, Unity, which then would be a pay a large dividend when you like did all the math, it was a dividend cut. And so a lot of people were upset and it was a confusing situation. Uh, Windstream owned 20% of Unity even after the spinoff. So they were going to, and they said clearly we're going to divest this 25, 20% we own to pay down our own debt. And so you, first of all, as it's clear, there was a lot of debt involved here. I was curious about it because I thought that there might be some interesting dynamics related to the shareholder base being frustrated, a lot of turnover. You're talking about going from the types of people who are interested in large dividends from a telecom provider who might not have the patience to wade through all of this. And, and I didn't, I stayed away, but the stock sort of started trading. It looks like around $30 a share got as low as 15 and then more or less doubled from the bottom in Q1 2016 to Q4 2016 or the end of Q3. So there was some like an opportunistic investor or trader, I guess, would have gotten in there. I started looking at it again. I own another regional telecom provider. It's interesting what you said about Gilead. That stock has been more or less flat with me for me over the years, but it goes up and down enough that I can kind of 
I almost feel like my successes in investing are buy a stock, it goes down, I average in, and then it gets back to the original price and I like make a profit because I had averaged in. It's like the bag holder strategy. Is that good or bad? I think it's really bad. But, <laughs> but it works for me. I don't know. I mean, look, I think it's, I don't buy the Paul Tudor Jones thing about losers, average losers. But I think, you know, if you've done your work, if your work is good and a stock goes down, then yeah, add more. Anyway, my point is I've been, I was curious about, I was looking at Cincinnati Bell. I actually did write something for my personal notes about this. I was looking at Cincinnati Bell, which is another regional. They had a fiber optics business that was interesting. I think our old colleague and current Seeking Alpha contributor, Vince Martin, may have pitched it at the time. And that brought me over to, I started looking at Unity again, and I was intrigued. It had come down from that sort of peak in Q3 2016. It was trading. I entered in the mid-20s. And... Essentially, my thesis was. I was about to ask. This was a nice story, but what was your thesis? I so I can sort of quote from the notes I wrote to myself because and it's my notes are kind of. I would give myself C plus or B minus in hindsight for this. Oof. Oof. Quite a bit of debt, and its cash flow doesn't hundred percent cover its dividend. It's something like ninety five percent once you deduct capex. But the company has diversified quite a bit from Windstream, so its fortunes are not wholly dependent on its former parent. And I do think the Windstream contract is still fairly secure. My worst case scenario is the company cuts its dividend in half, which means a 4.8% yield occurring pricing, not the end of the world. I thought that, I thought that the upside could have been 45 to 50% above where I entered. And I tried to, having had experience getting overly finicky about entering in a stock once I decided it was a buy, I tried to be a little bit more proactive about opening instead of waiting for it to fall mm. to my order price. Yep. I only do market orders now for oh. that reason. Interesting. Because I'm just too paralyzed. I just decide and go. I just yeah. go that day. Yeah. I think there's something, again, it's, it's one of those things where there's something to overcoming your bias for being too finicky and taking action as long as you've done good work. So, so okay. So your thesis was this has a really high yield, mm-hmm. dividend yield, that you feel is fairly secure. And even if there's a cut and you're wrong, you're still comfortable with the consequences of, of, of that possibility. I thought, yeah, I thought that there was enough I thought there was enough cash flow that even if they had to cut to their balance sheet was quite levered, even if they decided to pay down a little bit, they should be able to, they had a path to grow cash flow that I thought would be enough to get. I thought they could make that balance well enough. Uh huh. And so you mentioned what you were worried about. Is there any, were there any particular elements that concerned you? As you were contemplating the downside, the debt, maybe? Yeah, I think the debt and the fact that the CapEx, I, I think there's something in REITs where, and I think because the last time we did what, why I'm a bad investor, I mentioned another REIT that I made this mistake on, Washington Prime Group. But I think we often ignore CapEx. We just take adjusted funds from operation, which usually includes maintenance CapEx, but not growth CapEx. And we say, okay, it's fine. It, as long as that covers the dividend, they're covering the dividend. But that's not the – like you just need to look, is net debt going up or down? And if it's going up, what does that mean and how much more room? And I think that's where I should have been more circumspect about figuring out the cap X and – Which, by and, the way, it wasn't fully – you weren't – dividend was not fully covered even at present. But I can right. see why that wasn't like the worst thing in the world. I was hoping that they could skate by until they grew their cap, their cash flow to to hundred percent or more. Hopefully, cover it. Mm. You know, REITs are high expected to yield a lot, and I should say that it wasn't. There were a couple people writing about it on Seeking Alpha, 
but it wasn't it became much more of a battleground over the coming years uh over the time that i held it but it wasn't yet and so i didn't feel like i was joining a crowded situation hmm. i feel like they can go either way maybe no one's looking at it because there's nothing to look at you know yeah I just I think with uh, with the seeking alpha community, there's a ton of interest in dividends, and I'm not saying this dismissively. Ton of interest in dividends and REITs and yield plays, and I think when there's a lot of interest in a name, and there's it's one thing if it's like realty income is a battleground, but it's also more or less. Just, I think it's primarily a question of valuation. There's some retail exposure, but it's not like a, it's not one of these yield traps that kind of people jump into because there's a big number on the dividend mm-hmm. side. So that, that at the time, that didn't look to be the case. You know, there were authors who I respect who were writing about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a huge topic yet. Uh huh. So when, Daniel, this didn't go well. So when did you realize that it wasn't going well? So I think that it's it sort of traded down pretty quickly. And I wasn't, and there was, and then there was a big event in August, I think, of, where did I have this? 17. August, so August 17, Unity and Windstream got downgraded. Windstream cut its dividend. And that, and that's, look, because I think that's, that was a reminder that as much as Unity is trying to diverse, they were walking this fine rope or this tight rope between we want to diversify away from Windstream because they were, their target was to eventually have where the Windstream contract was only half of their revenue. And it started out as 100%. I think they got to about 70% by the time I left. But to do that, they had to acquire new assets or they had, and they had to do capex on those new assets and they weren't paying low prices for those assets. And so they were really kind of playing in a seller's market, I think is sort of mm-hmm. what, and I should have been a little bit. So that, that downgrade was a big deal. And then in September, I believe it was of 2017, a hedge fund filed a lawsuit over the spinoff arguing that it was a violation of debt covenants and <laughs> not what you want not great not great but and i th- i don't know for example i don't remember if Wyco researcher got to this at any point i think he talked about windstream so he may have covered it but <laughs> <laughs> while he was at the gym he overheard some <laughs> Some gossip. He he has been covering Windstream in the recent times. I can't remember when he started, but it was sort of it's it this you it's a bad sign when a stock that you're interested in shows up in Matt Levine's money stuff column, and it didn't really show up there until towards the end when things went awry. But it was one of these things where the hedge fund bought the bonds after the fact. And then argued that this was in violation of the debt covenant. And and so you're – there was a lot of like – you know, that's a fairly opaque topic. I don't really have any great insight there. And so I was just sort of looking at like, oh, great. I'm getting 60 cents a quarter back from the dividend. And, and, you know, I'm looking for a FFO multiple of 10 – like even 10 would have got me back to whole 15 would have been pretty nice in theory there was still a story there was still a lot of confidence it seemed from unity's management that this would resolve that the that even in a that the contract with windstream was such that even if windstream went bankrupt and this was a common theme now the stock is with its big yield i mean we're talking about over 12 percent i think People are starting to write about it a lot and argue about it. And there's it's a common theme. Even if Windstream goes into bankruptcy, the lease is structured such that it should be unrejectable, I think was the, like it should be <laughs> it takes precedent over the bonds. And so that was the common theme. Uh-huh. But also on Value Investors Club, for example, the common theme was 
this it takes precedence over the bond. So you're basically the the top of the capital stack. So even if Winstrup goes bankrupt, like people need to use phones or internet, it can't. It's not going to go away. <laughs> so you can already hear me scraping for grasping at straws. <laughs> people are going to need. If there's one thing we're sure of, it's that people are going to need landlines. I mean, that's flip. People do probably still today. I don't think I use one. No, uh, I so don't use one. how much were you down at that point? So percentage wise, we're talking. Let's let me pull up the chart again just to kind of relive all of this. So it went <laughs> down. I entered at about. I don't remember what my average average cost basis was in the end, especially once you factor in dividends. But I entered my first big chunk, <clears throat> let's say around 24. And I probably then uh-huh. added a leg around 21 and maybe one more around 18. And 18 was more or less where I stopped. Uh-huh. The stock got as low as 14, it looks like in 2017. And then kind of mm-hmm. gr- held ground grinded a little bit higher, still paying off its dividend, actually got up a couple times, poked its head back into the 20s. And I should say, to some degree, I lightened up when I could. I, again, I made that joke about- I don't my, want to hear that. <laughs> so so I, it was, but but it was still my biggest position until I, uh-huh. until okay. the bad news happened. So- so I, you know, I rebalanced a little bit, but it was, so it kind of chugged along. So it sounds like, did you take action? You had this downgrade, you had this lawsuit. I mean, I was, I was doing more work on the stock, the lawsuit. So here's, here's what I think I did wrong is two things is the lawsuit was a pretty binary risk and I didn't really have a way to factor that in, but mm-hmm. Here's what I really did wrong, I think, is that the stock had kind of recovered. It sold off around Christmas last year and then recovered. And it was up in like, and I remember doing some work out of the beginning of the year. I was at about 19 a share. I was kind of looking at it and I was thinking to like, even if the loss, like, I sort of realized this wasn't so attractive anymore. Like, my best case scenario was more or less getting back to 24 and this was my largest position. And even though I had decreased it, I still wasn't aggressive enough about sort of resizing it at the very least. And then there was this binary risk out there. And so it just wasn't. And I think what's, I think the, anal, so that was more of a portfolio management error. I think the analytical mistake is just this sort of taking the, Dividend, co- the dividend coverage, I think I understood, actually. It was like eyes open, even if I didn't act properly. But there is this sort of presumption that the price Windstream is paying on its lease is reasonable and that this industry is growing. And I didn't really, they would talk about dark fiber, light fiber. They would buy cell phone towers in, in the Americas. They were like, they had all these diversification strategies. And I just didn't, you know, you think about American Tower as a great growing REIT and the other cell tower REITs do well. But this wasn't, I don't think this was the, that was the right way to think about this. And I didn't put enough thought into, I was treating this as sort of a black box of, okay, it's gonna, they've got this contract windstream and it won't break. And then they'll add some more revenue on top of it. And then great. And I just think I didn't interrogate that enough. But you got out eventually, or do you still have a huge position? I did get out, but President's Day weekend this year was on, we went away for the weekend, and I'm trying to see when we broke the news, but I think it was Friday night. I think this was a Friday night news break. Yeah, Friday after hours, Windstream lost its court fight to the hedge fund, and this unity windstream's now in bankruptcy unity was trading at closed just shy of 20 and closed the next day tuesday at 12 and a half yeah i see that on the chart <laughs> i got out after that happened 
So, ouch. So the binary risk uh, did not shake out in your favor. Yeah, and it was just like, I don't know that I, like, look, you can get a binary risk wrong. I think the arguments that were being made on Seeking Alpha and elsewhere were being made by people without a ton of legal expertise, and they were... Mm -hmm. They were reasonable, but they weren't legalistic. They were like, look, these guys didn't own their vulture hedge funds and they didn't. And this was all agreed. And and because Windstream was doing a ton of reissuing new bonds and trying to crowd out Aurelius' position to say we have majority agreement. And and, mm-hmm. and that's that's where Matt Levine, like pretty much everybody except the hedge fund that sued them was like, it's fine. We don't care. But it doesn't, that's not how law works, I think, is essentially what happened here. And so, yeah, so I ended up losing, in total, when I factored in, I did the math. I recovered 62% of my investment in Unity when you factor in all the dividends. Okay. So it was an expensive lesson. It was, um, yeah, it was not fun. I guess I, the stock is still trading. It's not a zero yet. I, I, when you mentioned this whole thing about this claim, sort of ex post claim on the assets or on the on the sp- on the spun company, I guess if I'm understanding correctly, mm-hmm. I was like, what happens? They can't like unspin it out. Did they just have to pay a huge fee? pay a huge chunk of change to the hedge fund or like what was the remediation I bo- and like what and given what you said about the dividend coverage i'm really surprised the equity wasn't just totally wiped out so i think what's happened i haven't been following closely and i the only thing i'll say is that i did not like oh i did not get thesis drift in that sense like once this happened it was just I may not have traded it perfectly as far as the exit points, but I did have, I closed my positions within a few weeks, essentially. Uh-huh. You so, were done. Yeah. yeah, I should have probably done it faster, but fine. I, I did get out. I think they were required to make the bondholders whole for the 2025 bond or whatever it was that the hedge fund had bought out. And then after that, Windstream... And what's funny here, and I want to just double check to be sure the management team the ceo for unity group is brothers with the previous ceo for windstream i believe and so there was so that which setting aside whatever questions that might raise that was also in theory going to be a cause for oh well they'll get along like they're not gonna fight with each other. <laughs> I mean, nobody. You would. and I both have brothers. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, that I, reasoning only extends to like some imaginary abstract brotherhood. Paradise. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, I do think any practical purpose. Yeah, interesting. They're brothers. What but could go wrong. In any That's case, actually, the tagline for the brothers Karamazov. I think. Which I don't know the plot to, but I thought that would be a good fun reference. It's anyway. a good good fun reference. I, I, you got me. So yeah, that anyway. Windstream is now like saying we're paying this this lease is. I think they're fighting the lease and trying to get it lowered, and so that so Unity still is paying like a little bit of a dividend. They're still a REIT. They're now getting <laughs> um, cigar butt to sort of. Mentions on Seeking Still Alpha. a read. <laughs> but I got that going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm just they. They are scheduled to announce. We're recording this on November seventh. They're scheduled to actually announce earnings after the close today. They, yeah. I mean, there's some they, like these assets are meaningful. They're, you know, people need to use these lines, oh, wow. like I said. But yeah, I just don't know what the what the, the FFO of four. Great. That's that's not high. 
It's pretty low. But that's also... Keep in mind, so that means that FFO is forecast at something like one one seventy five, whereas their dividend used to be two forty. So even right there, you can say it's essentially a so be careful black swan as far as their divi- their FFO got hit because now they have to deal with all the fallout from the court case. But yeah, I think I, I don't I, I don't know what the I haven't read, but I don't know what the bull case would be at this point. Especially with the management questions that all of this really raises. Uh-huh. Wow. Daniel, so we talked a little bit, but why don't you wrap it up nicely? What um what did you learn here? What was the lesson from all of this? <sighs> as much as I've I've tried to do <laughs> I've tried to do two things. I've tried to avoid yield plays as like a, I still have a couple BDCs in my portfolio, but I've tried to like, it's just so tempting to look at a dividend and be like, oh, okay, like that's nice. That's something, but it doesn't, it doesn't make, and I think the literature has shown it doesn't necessarily make sense to follow that. So I've really tried to be more disciplined about not chasing. I, I don't know. I think it's, like, because I have another stock in my portfolio now that isn't the same. It's, it's an, in- well, I'll just say it briefly because it, it, it feels similar a little bit is Garrett Motion, which also reports this week. GTX, I'm long GTX. Spinoff from Honeywell. We've kind of alluded to it without naming it in the past as a over leveraged, super cheap, PE multiple because it is because it's leverage it's trading cheaply and that was a case where I had just closed an auto position I used to own Ford shares and finally closed it and we talked about GM last year I'm not like super bullish on that sector but for the I had done the work on that spinoff for an article on Seeking Alpha and I was like oh yeah it's pretty cheap and we had some high quality authors also call it cheap and I think it's just, it's one of those where I think it's worth stepping back. I don't do this enough. I take what the numbers are without stepping back and thinking, mm-hmm. where's this industry going? Where is this company's place in this industry? How comfortable am I with that, etc. And so that's where mm-hmm. I think, I think that's the biggest that and sort of being smarter about and so the thing i'm doing better with garrett is that it's not a very large size position i'm sort of giving them this quarter to figure out if they're gonna have they had a really bad q2 if they if their q3 is bad i'll probably close it and move on but that's that's sort of i think the lesson the lessons i have and haven't learned is do a better job stepping back thinking about the position and the company as a whole rather than just quantitatively analyzing them. Okay. Wow. Daniel, we're both bad investors some of the time. Can't invest well in good stocks all of the time. Or even... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Really can't. (laughs) Okay. But you can Um, invest in bad. Yeah. So, So, listeners lessons hopefully you can learn from our lessons we've tried to learn from other people's mistakes you guys if you if you have bad investor experiences let us know about them email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com leave a comment get in touch with me or daniel we're not hard to find uh use link use linkedin i like getting some linkedin messages Mike is a LinkedIn fan. They've got good gross margins. Huge LinkedIn guy. LNKD. Look it up. Uh, Well, I don't... I think we've shared enough about what we don't know for people. So maybe it's time to wrap. What do you think, Dane? Yeah, let's wrap it there. And if you're still listening, join us next week. We're 100th episode gala. Should be fun. Yeah. Wear your your Sunday best. That sounds good. All right. All right. Take care, Daniel. See you, Mike.